Welcome to the GSI Briefing Podcast. This is Audrey Lane, Policy Director of the Garden State Initiative. By now, you've probably heard that Governor Phil Murphy is following California's lead and signing a directive that will ban the sale of gas-powered cars in New Jersey by 2035. Left unsaid is how realistic the proposal is and what will it take to meet an all-electric future. Here to discuss the governor's mandate and other issues regarding electric vehicles is Mark P. Mills, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. Mr. Mills is the author of a recent research report, Electric Vehicles for Everyone, The Impossible Dream, which offers a reality check on those who think a ban on gasoline cars is easily obtainable, let alone a panacea for climate change. Here's my conversation with Mark Mills. Mark, thanks for joining us. Uh, We've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Well, it's good to be invited. Thank you. Well, as we know, you've done a great deal of uh, research on electric vehicles, and um, we're going to jump right into these questions. As you know, uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy has announced a ban on the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. How widespread are these types of mandates across the U.S. and across the world? More widespread than makes sense. It's a. It really is. I mean, I'll I'll expose my bias at the outset. It's really crazy. It's a. It's loony. I know why people are doing it. I understand that they believe what they're doing. I'm not insulting the people doing it, but it's really a bad idea. Uh, there's about a dozen states at last count that have already implemented either an announcement or a legislation or the governor's declaration that by some date, like 2030, 2032, so within a decade, you won't be able to buy a new car with an internal combustion engine. And, you know, I think there's probably two dozen countries ranging from England to France to the uh, Netherlands uh, that have done the same thing. It's uh, it's a, it's a tidal wave of epic um, looking for a non non a non invective kind of word like ep- an epic mistake, uh, which, as we'll talk about, will redound to the disadvantage of the politicians who are doing it. But by putting it 10 years out, most of them are probably betting that there won't be around to take the heat. That's, 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 my, that's my cynical guess. Well, one thing that's come up recently in New Jersey is it's interesting that some states have enacted a ban, some haven't. So within a couple of miles, um, it virtually renders such a policy ineffective. Thoughts on that? Well, I mean, look, sure, you could make it uh, illegal for you with a New Jersey license to own a, own an internal combustion engine purchased anywhere, anywhere. I just make it illegal. You can't register it in that state. So it's, that's an easy that's an easy fix. You want to go to Pennsylvania and buy uh, an F-150 with a V-8? Good luck getting it registered. And, of course, the police will pull you over if they see you driving, as it already is the case in every jurisdiction, without a state plate for too long, living in state, and you'll get fined and your vehicle will be taken away and put in the scrapyard. So if if a government really wants to do this, uh, they have the tools to do this, to prevent you from buying things that you'd prefer to buy. Uh, there are some things in that category, very, very few in our society, uh, fall into a category where governments prohibit you from buying something that's useful. 
by that, by useful, I mean food and fuel and, uh, you know, transportation things. You can even buy an airplane if you want. You might not be able to license to fly it if you can afford it, but you can buy one. Uh, I mean, but I mean, an airplane, I mean, like a 737, you could buy it if you have $120 million and you could park it somewhere. There's a lot of things you're allowed to buy. You can't buy machine guns. You can't buy hand grenades. There's, there's some things that are really, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be allowed to buy. We could agree, but the list is really, really short. And now, and now we have governments making it illegal for you to purchase the single most expensive product that most Americans will ever buy. And I mean product, right? A house is not a product. It's an asset. So it's a product. There's no more. There's no product that, that 99% of Americans purchase voluntarily more expensive than a car. And there's no product more important and more valuable. If you think about it to let's just say 80% of Americans, there's a, there's a small percentage who don't have and can't afford a car or, or, or have aged out from driving or too young to drive. We could say, we're talking about, talking about adult Americans. So it's a, um, so I wrote in my report, I mean, this prohibition, I could only come up with two uh, analogies to a prohibition of this kind in modern American history. The first was the, the prohibition of 1920, where a substance that human beings have been consuming since before written history, alcohol, uh, was made a banned. You couldn't purchase alcohol. Mm-hmm. Now, that didn't work out so well. I mean, it's the ban stayed in place for 13 years. Most people don't don't know their history. And it, it generated an epic criminal, uh, famously, the untouchables and all that stuff. Epic criminal behavior, not in the part of just criminals, but common citizens, hence the speakeasy. It was a most widely flouted law, probably in American history, until the next prohibition. In 1974, the government and its wisdom to save energy, similar motive as today, banned your ability to drive over 55 miles an hour anywhere in America. So it was a ban. It was a ban on convenience because the reason you drive 65 or 70 is because something is pretty precious to you which is your time so we we robbed people of time by banning your ability to drive over 55 that also stayed in place for about a decade to save fuel we know in hindsight i knew at the time i was young then when that was going on that it wouldn't save fuel significantly more importantly it was also one of the most widely flouted laws in american history uh you know, some jurisdictions enforce it for a revenue collection, right? You got your $50 ticket for driving the 65 or 70 in a 55 zone and, and off you go. In both cases, the underlying motives, you could understand prohibition was because they were worried about, you know, the immigrants that were drinking too much. That was the, I'm, I'm being simplistic and causing, uh, you know, marital discord and uh, abuse and all this crime. So we want to stop that by banning alcohol. Great idea. And then the second prohibition was was really the beginning of the modern uh, ed- energy era after the oil oil embargo of 1970-74, right. where, where everybody was, was convinced we we're running out of oil. because Not because we were running out of oil, but because another government banned selling it to us, the Saudis and their partners. It wasn't like the world was running out of oil. Not not America or anywhere on the planet, but the entire architecture of energy planning from 1973-74 onwards was predicated on we're running out of oil. Now, we've, we've switched that in the last decade, as you know, from we're running out of oil to we shouldn't be using all that oil we got. I, I mean, I get that. Hence, brings us fast forward to 
the long answer to your question, <laughs> we now have <laughs> bans on buying a vehicle that's affordable, it's convenient in every possible way. And we're going to force everybody to buy one of two things, electric vehicle or a used car. They're not talking about banning used cars at the moment. They may get around to that. What will happen, of course, is that if you ban the availability of new conventional cars, the price of used cars will soar, will take off because the market, people will keep their cars longer, maintain them more. So it'll be, it'll be an epic run on used cars. And of course, and, and of course, costs will follow. Um, yes. But at this point, um, how common are electric vehicles in the United States? And what are the what are the sales trends? Are you following this? Is this sure. catching on? Well, there's a lot more than there used to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> so America has about two million EVs, and the and the, the counters put their finger on the scale. They count quote plug in hybrids along with. Uh, all electric vehicles. And that's a little disingenuous since they're going to ban the engines that are used for the hybrids. Uh, Counting them seems like putting your finger on the scale on the number of EVs. So last year, globally, about 10 million EVs were sold, real EVs, seven to 10 million. In the United States, uh, we we approached, I think it was 600,000. It was less than a million. So America has a couple of million EVs in it. Probably half of them are in California, unsurprisingly. And the others are all, all high income zip codes in uh, you know suburban New Jersey and Manhattan and you know uh, outside of Washington D.C. EVs are let's be clear uh, EVs are are fun to drive they're nice the Tesla actually uh, Elon Musk deserves credit for doing something nobody has done in a century starting a car company that successfully competed with the majors and you can't explain that away with subsidies it's not a subsidy story I think the subsidies are silly but it's not that's not what enabled him to build his, his there were, there were no subsidies when he started. He didn't build it because he knew there were subsidies. He had an idea. He had a vision. Good on him. And, and in the United States today, as of last year, it's true, true still so far this year, more than half of all luxury cars are Teslas. So wow. Elon Musk robbed all the automakers of the most profitable market segment. Now, that's a that's a market segment that's 10% of vehicles are luxury vehicles. 90% of people don't buy luxury cars. But, you know, cars that are nominally 70,000, 80,000 or more uh, are very profitable to manufacture. And that's where Tesla sell and most EVs sell. And uh, good on him. He really spanked them. And uh, as a consequence, they're all making EVs now. What a, what a surprise. It's a really lucrative market. Impressive to say the least. Yeah. Um, so proponents of, of the bans um, and this conversion to electric vehicles, they reduce carbon emissions um, as, as the driving force behind the efforts. What does science say? Well, first of all, it's not just the drivers. It's the only motive, right? The motive, they're not, no one is saying we're doing this to save your money. Uh, although a few people claim it's going to save you money, you know that's the claim, and no one is doing it because they think it's safer. Uh, we're not. We're not. It's the man, the mandates and bans are entirely anchored in the belief and claim that they will quote radically reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Okay, uh, it's not a scientific question. It's it's an accounting question, in this sense. Uh, if you, you if you want to know how much carbon dioxide. Your, your vehicle emits, you have an accounting problem. And instead of counting money, right, you count BTUs, measure of fuel. Right. And you, the kind of BTUs 
whether it's electricity or oil, right, or gas to make electricity, or and where those BTUs are consumed, because that matters too. And, uh, and, and then you have to know those facts across the entire, what's called the fuel cycle, the life cycle of the car, from when you ma- get the materials to manufacture it through to when you've finished driving it after 100,000 miles. So we know something about conventional vehicles, that 80 or 90% of all their emissions are associated with burning gasoline. What a surprise. There are there are there is energy used to get the steel and the iron and and you know the rubber and plastics to make the vehicle. So there are emissions associated with manufacturing a conventional car. But essentially all the emissions occur when you drive the car. And you know exactly how much emissions are because you know exactly how much fuel you buy because you get to buy it and everybody tracks it because they tax it in New Jersey and everywhere else, right? We know Absolutely. exactly so we know exactly how much CO2 you personally have admitted because we track your behavior by your, your purchasing behavior, so to speak. All right. EVs only emit when they're parked. They don't emit anything when they're driving. They don't have a tailpipe. Well, we all know that. So when they're parked to refuel, they're using electricity that causes emissions somewhere else. Those emissions vary wildly. It depends where you where you refuel and when you refuel. And the when, obviously, let's just say, for example, you live in an area where they actually have windmills. New Jersey has windmills. And you happen to be charging your vehicle at the time the wind is blowing, or you happen to be charging your vehicle at the time the wind's not blowing and you're importing coal-fired power from a neighboring state. That means you're actually filling your vehicle with either coal or wind power. So that, that, that the variation on CO2 emissions is obviously huge. Uh, the, the other factor... It, the, the huge wild card, and by the way, you can't do averages. You can't say, oh, I'll average how much CO2 the grid emits, and that'll be the average electricity for a, for a car, and that'll be the average CO2 emissions. No, it won't. That's that is that's prima facie silly. If everybody charged a vehicle at night in, in China, which is what happens, China's grid's two-thirds coal-fired. That means China's electric cars are coal-fired, period. It doesn't matter if you if there's wind blowing in the daytime in some region in China if they charge the car at night in a coal-fired grid, and it's and and the and that's what's providing the power. So the average is the average is really really silly, which is what everybody's using, by the way. So when EPA rates your emissions for your electric vehicle, they're using average emissions from the grid in the region you live in, which which varies by a lot across the country, but it varies even more hour to hour, region to region. And then you have the problem of building the EV. And just like a regular car, you have to dig stuff out of the earth. You have to mine things. You have to convert the mine stuff into useful minerals. And you have to manufacture the vehicle. And that causes emissions. But this is this is where the really big numbers come in. The really, the really disingenuous behaviors are being engaged in. So what it's not that the, the carbon counters don't know what I just said. They do. And again, they use averages. They say, well, yes, uh, EVs, battery takes you know lithium obviously copper and nickel and manganese and graphite a whole soup of minerals that have to be mined with diesel burning machines that cause co2 emissions so they count that but they they count a average across all the world and they count a low average and i in my study i looked at all the studies in fact there was a study of studies a so-called meta study the meta study of 52 different studies you know scientific studies to use your 
your predicate, uh, looked across all the range of different studies and found out that the estimates for the actual CO2 emissions associated with making the batteries varied by fivefold. It's a 500% wow. variation, huge, Wow! depending on the assumptions that were being made. And none of the assumptions were wrong. They're just different assumptions. Was the, was the copper dug up in Chile or in Russia? Was the nickel refined in Indonesia or China? Was the graphite uh, you know, produced uh, as a synthetic material, because you can do that, or mined out of the ground. Was the lithium, I mean, you go on and on, right? This, it, right. When you look at the data on this, the variability there is even higher. It's huge. Uh, but what I did is say, well, okay, why don't we, instead of choosing a low average, use a number that's closer to what's probably going on. For example, we know that the overwhelming majority of these energy minerals, copper, lithium, cobalt, manganese, are refined in China. We know that. They have global market share. It's huge, between 40% and 80%. Right. And in rare earths, they have a 98% market share. And we know their grid is coal-fired. Gee, who didn't know that? Uh, so if we look at the actual CO2 emissions associated with the materials that you actually use for most cars, then you have this huge burden of CO2 emissions that's associated with just building the car. And that's because the battery in a typical EV, not again, not the ones that are used in the claims and the studies. And by that, I mean, people assume in their studies, tiny batteries for tiny cars. That's not what Americans are buying. And that's not what Europeans are buying. They're buying SUVs with big batteries. If you assume bigger batteries, the battery in a Tesla weighs a thousand pounds. So, you know, the EV cognoscenti know that. Most people don't know the battery weighs a half a ton. And most people don't know that to get the minerals to make that one battery, somewhere on earth, you've had to dig up 250 tons of rock and earth to make one battery. Wow. That's a lot of stuff you dig it up. It's a lot of material. And then you have to grind it up, which takes energy. Then you have to use chemicals to dissolve the rock. To get minerals out of a rock, you have to make energy-intensive chemicals dissolve the rock. I mean, it's crazy. That's how we get minerals. And then use energy again to refine the minerals into the form you need. So when you're doing that for a half-ton battery, instead of a 80 pounds of gasoline, which is what you're replacing, it's a lot of CO2 emissions. So what, what, I, what I tell people which I think is the, the honest thing to say, which no one is saying, is we actually have no idea how much emissions are reduced by using an EV. We just don't know. It could, it could lead to 70% emissions reductions in a few, in some cases, in certain regions of the world with certain kinds of minerals. It could lead to a doubling of emissions compared to just driving a better internal combustion engine. We don't know, and we can't track it. And more importantly, we can't figure it out because this, the, the supply chains are proprietary, global, and labyrinthine. We just don't know. But we do know that it's not much. This is what the, the data show you, is that the actual emissions reductions for a typical EV, 15 to 20%, maybe maybe 30% over an internal combustion engine car. And that's over 120,000 miles of driving. For the first 60,000 miles of driving, You've emitted more CO2 driving your EV than driving the internal combustion engine. And I'll end with this one last fact on beating up on the CO2 nonsense. Most EVs in America are driven half as many miles as the average car. So if you just think about the two things I just said, you 
most people don't drive the EV far enough to actually offset the emissions that they would have caused by just driving a regular car instead. And is that because people who are purchasing the EVs are usually using those for their local car? And if they have to take a longer trip, they go back to their... Yeah, of course. Most EVs are owned by multi-car households. Mm-hmm. For the households with two or three cars, uh, for a multi-car household, a second car or third car is an EV is extremely handy because you can leave it. These are households that almost always have a garage. So about a third of American homes have garages. So mm-hmm. about a third of American homeowners have a garage. And those those are wealthier than the ones who don't, typically. Yeah. Uh, we're not counting Manhattan, you know, penthouses we're talking. And they have garages. Right. Right. Uh, but th- that for that buyer... Uh, you know, whether the EV is more expensive or less expensive, kind of irrelevant, right? Uh, the fact that it it uh, is convenient to charge in your garage because you're not going to go on a long trip, great. Uh, then I don't have to go to a gas station at all. And even better, utilities in New Jersey and all over the all over the country are actually paying for some of my fuel. They don't tax me for road taxes, and they give me subsidies to put a charger in my garage. I mean, what's not to love? Subsidize the rich. What a great idea. Well, that actually leads me to our next question, which is um, going back to a report that we at Garden State Initiative released in 2021. Uh, we actually questioned the economic case for electric vehicles, uh, particularly for middle and lower income families. Yet we hear the claim that EVs will soon be at parity or lower in cost than the traditional um, internal combustion vehicles. Is this realistic in your opinion? Well, it's not an opinion. It's a fact. It's okay. not. It's not. It's, I'm, being, I'm being provocative. Um, it's not. It's wildly unrealistic uh, for the same reason that the batter, the battery is important in the carbon accounting. The battery is important in the economic accounting. So everybody knows who studies this, as I'm sure you you knew in your study, uh, that the battery is extraordinarily expensive. It, it's in. It's almost the entire reason the EV costs more. Batteries add ten to twenty thousand dollars to the cost of a car, and everything else in the car is roughly the same. The seats, the wheels, the internal combustion engine costs about the same as electric motors, by the way, and they weigh about the same, so doesn't change much. The biggest difference is a regular engine is made out of steel and iron, and an electric motor's got a lot of copper, which is expensive, hard to come by. But um, the claim that they will get cheaper because of volume production, it's a sense of the argument. As we get better at it, they'll get cheaper. Right. There's some truth to that. As we get better at manufacturing things, things do get cheaper incrementally. But since the battery is the entire reason that the vehicle costs on average, but basically that means it doubles the cost of the, of the lowest cost vehicle. But the lowest cost vehicle, unsubsidized, you can buy a brand new car for $12,000 to $18,000. If I if I put a $12,000 battery in it, I've almost doubled the price of the car. So you're, you're telling me, they're telling me that the battery is going to be free, in effect, because the rest of the vehicle is the same in terms of cost. Okay, free is kind of silly. It's, that's not going to happen. Or they're going to get cheaper. So the claim that batteries will get cheaper is entirely anchored on uh, on the naive assumption that the materials needed to make the battery will get cheaper. And the reason I say that is that 70 to 80% of the cost to make a car battery is in the cost of the materials to make it. So if you do this, that's why I say this is an accounting issue, the carbon accounting. Okay, let's pretend that I, I, I reduce by 90% 
the, the all the other labor costs, the machine costs, or all, all the overhead costs to make the battery. It, we just we, we drop that by ninety percent. So we're, we're going to make the twenty percent ninety percent cheaper. Well, you can do math here. I mean, making the twenty percent ninety percent cheaper lowers the cost eighteen percent. So you got a little bit cheaper overhead. But what happens if the minerals get more expensive? Because the minerals are 80% of the cost of the of the battery. And the minerals, copper, again, nickel, aluminum, manganese, graphite, uh, these minerals are not mined in the United States by and large. They're not refined here. China has, again, 40 to 80% market share of all the refining of these energy minerals. They have a market share in energy minerals, double OPEC's market share in oil. So what makes people think that they're not going to exercise pricing power? I mean, it's talk about naive and what makes people think that as we increase the number of batteries we're trying to build so what we're going to do we're going to do this so we have hundreds of billions of dollars of battery assembly plants being built around the world that will require more copper just never mind the rest of the metals more copper than the world's now mining so those those people making those claims are betting two things the world will mine enough copper okay takes 10 to 16 years to open a mine so do the math on that they cost okay. billions of dollars each and no one's opening new mines right now, or almost none, certainly not in America. And if you increase demand for a, a commodity, uh, gee, I go back to economics 101. So the demand for copper is going to go up 200% to 300%. The demand for lithium is going to go up about 500%. The demand for nickel is going to go up 400 or 500%. And, but the supplies are not going to go up that that much that fast in the next decade. It can't, can't. We're not building the mines. So what happens to price? I'll be, come on, price is going up. So right. every time I hear an auto executive or an EV proponent, uh, you know, say they're going to get cheaper with volume, show me the data that so supports the idea that those minerals are getting cheap fast or we're going to overproduce them. It, it is simply not the case that that's happening. So what will happen is, and it'll take about one or two years, the world is not short any of those minerals right now because you know, once everybody gets on board and and if the if people believe that they're really going to make enough vehicles to supply the world's well let's just take the US you know the 18 million vehicles a year Americans want instead of you know selling a million vehicles which is you know 5% of market if we make them 20 or 30% of the market that you could do the math here it's a 30 fold increase in demand for those minerals just out of the United States so it is it's not going to end well prices are already up for these minerals uh, technology is making it easier to use fewer minerals, but the technology to do that cannot possibly keep up with the demand, especially if governments mandate that you can only buy an NEV. It's going right. to be an epic collision between supply and demand. So, so let's talk about demand a little bit. Um, proponents are claiming, as you note in your report, a uh, diminishing role for automobiles in modern yeah. times yeah sure are those people driven anywhere late, lately i just want to sorry to interrupt you have they been on the road lately post lockdown uh, <laughs> go ahead sorry <laughs> of course the goal would be for less people to own cars yeah so we've talked a lot in new jersey about whether governments coming for our gas stoves yeah are they similarly coming for our cars well, they already are. He just told you it's coming for your gasoline-powered car. So, and the next step will be to claw back cars, right? That will be what will happen. The logical thing to do if you don't buy enough EVs and keep driving 
your old cars, they'll, they'll come and take it, try to take it away from you. They won't allow you to relicense it. I mean, you could just elliptically imagine implementing rules that say you can't get a, a, a permit for a gasoline power car over a certain age. Just age them out. So are they coming for the car? Yes, they've said that. I mean, I say my they, uh, um, the proponents of an all EV future and fewer vehicles per person per house in the world have clearly articulated in writing, in reports, in op-eds. I mean, it's that the world has too many cars and that people have too many cars per family. In fact, the International Energy Agency has specifically laid out in its net zero plan that is pointed out the percentage of homes without a car that don't even a car at all uh, is, is slated to go down, right? As people get more cars, they want in their net zero policy, the percentage of homes that don't have a car to rise going into the future globally. That's a euphemism for saying they're taking your cars away or taking your right away to buy a car in the first place and then later take your car away. So the premise is, you know, look, you can get around on a lime scooter or bicycle. You should be walking, take mass transit. Okay. Uh, you know, you can, you can parse all these things. Oh, oh, the other one is millennials are different. You know, they love to sh- ride share. They want to own a car. They're going to, they're going to share. They're share. They're a sharing generation. Those evil boomers are the ones that like cars and, you know, sports cars. Those millennials are much more, sh- especially Gen Z's. I mean, they're really with it in the environment. I'm being sarcastic because the data show that millennials uh, buy cars as at the same rate as boomers and drive more miles and, and buy more S- and buy SUVs. And their first cars are more likely to be an SUV. And Gen Z purchase rate for uh, buying a vehicle, the first vehicle has increased, you know, like fivefold in the last six years. If you just, it's it, Gen Zs are following millennials, millennials are following boomers, which is following the whole world in terms of preference to buy a car. Uh, you say, well, people live in cities; they don't need a car. Well, it turns out if you look at the statistics, the United States. This is really crazy. I, I found this uh, writing for my book. Uh, which we're not talking about, but I will promote my book. The cloud. We can talk about it. Yeah. Go the ahead. Cloud revolution. It's about technology. But it, looking at it, uh, the Census Bureau showed that the United States is seeing a net migration starting in 2010 out of cities into urban, sort of suburban and, and ex-urban counties, into rural counties. And that got accelerated in the lockdowns. And some of those people are staying and some are moving back. But that trend began 10 years before the lockdowns. What does that mean? Well, people are are living where there isn't mass transit. There are no subways. There are no trains. There are no buses. And they're driving further distances. And they have more cars because each household needs, right? You you can't walk to a grocery store if you live in exurbia and rural areas. So all the trends are towards more miles, uh, more cars, and we'll be a, a more wealthy country. So we'll have plenty of room for people to have a second or third car that's an EV. And that's going to happen. And in my, in my view, I think the market for that is really big. I mean, in the United States, there's almost 300 million automobiles, more, more automobiles and licensed drivers. So let me touch on that for a minute. You talk about second and third cars. Is there information suggesting that electric vehicles are, in fact, an additional car in someone's driveway or a garage port? Um, yeah. As opposed to a replacing a car, so is there some irony in the fact that this is actually <laughs> adding an additional car to your to your collection? Yeah, sure, I, so the so the certainly, for, as a family becomes wealthier and moves to suburbia, in fact, I I've recommended this to uh, to my one of my daughters in law. I have, I have a, a phallus of uh, progeny with uh, married, and I was ta- telling her, "You got kids; it's a real hassle. Your second car. Why not have at least one of the cars?" That is 
one convenience. It, you remember to plug it in once a week. The amount you the amount you drive it, uh, you know, to run errands and take kids places, go to soccer. You'd be lucky to put a hundred miles a week on the car, maybe two hundred. So if you remember just once a week to plug it in, you'll never have to go near a gas station. I mean, that's really a gift if you're busy and you can afford it. It's more expensive, but whatever. You got a good job, buy the more expensive car. But yes, I think this more than anecdotal. I think statistically, we we know uh, that a lot of buyers. We we know for a fact that that ninety plus percent of all EV owners in America are in multi car households, and that means by definition, as America becomes wealthier, and that trend continues despite the Fed's best attempt to beat us into a recession, uh, people own more cars. They own an extra car, the fun car. I mean. The market that Rivian is going after and Ford with the F-150 Lightning, these are not construction worker markets. <laughs> this is this is the pickup truck to drive to get groceries market because it's just really cool. It can do fun things like, you know, it can rotate on its axis. You can you can power camping equipment from your, you know, from your truck and it uh, can, you know, cat, you know, so-called crab walk. I mean, it's just it's just fun. So who? And it has two trunks, right? It has the so-called trunk, the front trunk, because your batteries are a part of the chassis in the bottom of the vehicle. So switching gears a little bit, proponents of the transition to EVs are claiming that critics of the mandates are either funded by the fossil fuel industry or you know other entities, <laughs> um, and they support the status quo and offer no alternatives to EVs. So what do you say to that? Well, you don't have a good argument. You redound to insult and ad hominem. So the the debate should be about the facts. So the facts that I've laid out in my reports, I've written about a lot. I'm not alone in this. Is it if it's not true? Show me where it's not true. If the battery doesn't weigh a half ton, I I know it does, and the materials don't. You know, show me show me where the facts are wrong, and show me why you think the the vehicle will get cheap fast. Show just me the facts. Tell me I'm wrong. The thing that I've pointed out with respect to the oil industry, and, and I, I get, uh, I don't have any funding from the oil industry to do studies. So the studies I do for the Manhattan Institute are, are part of the Manhattan Institute, which has no earmarked studies, none that I've ever heard of or know about. So the donors and overwhelmingly private individuals, as far as I know, the last I checked, MI, for example, is typical of a lot of, a lot of think tanks. I, I don't know the specifics of others. They have a cap to the total percentage of corporate donation, donations they'll take. It's a number like 10 or 20% of total. So the, the money is not oil money. Even if Exxon were giving my MI, I have no idea if they are. It's irrelevant. Look, here, here, do some arithmetic first about the issue of the oil companies somehow want to suppress the uh, idea of more EVs. It, that would be true if EVs were an existential threat to the market for oil. That you could say, hard to argue against it, except it's not. So what most people don't have in their heads is the fact that if we get to a world that today has 10 million EVs, and maybe it's 14 million, and we get to a world with 10 times or more, 20 times more, I mean, 200 million, 300 million EVs, that's a lot. Okay. Um, that's in a world of 1.5 billion cars. And by the time that happens, the world will have 2 billion cars. So you're going to have 20% of the cars EVs. Let's just say that's the wild imagining. 400 million, which we don't have the copper to build, by the way. So that's, a, but it's, assume that happens. Okay. That, that, what that would do is reduce global oil consumption by less than 10%. So if you're an oil company, and I've said this to oil companies that I've briefed, I said, I, 
most of them, I don't know any of them that are funding anti-EV stuff. I've never heard of that. But I, I think go, you go girls. I mean, build all the EVs you want, whatever. First, you're going to use the oil to dig up all the stuff. So the caterpillars and diesels, the big diesels and deers and all, are going to be burning diesel fuel. And the mining sector is 40% of global industrial energy consumption is in mining. 40%. Almost half of all industrial energy is in mining. So we're going to convert from a very light energy footprint of drilling for oil, very easy to drill for oil, to an incredibly energy intensive mining industry that burns that burns oil. I mean, if I'm an oil company, I say, have at it. So it's silly on the face of it because it's it's not a threat to their business in any, in any way. It shifts demand from gasoline to diesel. For example, now the other uh, sort of claim is that uh, those who say things like I say, I, let's take I like EVs, I like driving them. I, I'm, I'm my next vehicle. I have a hybrid. I'm probably going to buy a plug-in hybrid because I love the idea of having that arbitrage. Uh, right. Then I don't have to have two vehicles. I can have my gasoline engine when I want to drive long distances, and for the 20 mile, 30 mile local driving, I'm on the battery. I think it's a great solution. Uh, so first is I'm among those who offer a solution. That's one of them. Instead of building a half ton battery. Right, you build a hundred pound battery. You build a battery one tenth the size to give you twenty mile and thirty mile range, which is more than adequate for daily use. So you could build ten times the number of EVs with the same number of hybrids as you can the EVs with the same amount of minerals. So that'd be smart. The other thing is if you if governments are honest and, and the politicians who want to give away taxpayers' money to cut oil use, that's the purpose, carbon dioxide emissions from oil use, then what they ought to do is honestly stop giving the money to their rich, I'll say it again, because the subsidies are going to the wealthy because they're expensive cars, and instead subsidize low-income households to buy more efficient internal combustion engines. Because the reason you don't buy the most efficient internal combustion engine is because it uses costs more. And in fact, if we want to go to a, a proposal that that a few environmentalists have put forward, and I'm 100% with them, if you if and I'm just going to stipulate, if you're worried about oil use, burning too much oil, then what you should do is target what's called super users. That is, this is an unsurprising statistic. It's the old 80-20 rule, right? It's a, it's a, about 80% of fuel is used by 20% of drivers, roughly. So these are people that drive long distances, super commuters, people who have, have trucks that have to, to drive to work and people who mow right. your lawn if you have a lawnmower. They, so right, what right. you could do is you could target the super users with subsidies for them to buy a more efficient, not EV. But you could make, if you like EVs, make the subsidy blind. What you do is you tell people who fit in that category of, and we know how far they drive because we force people in our, in our, in our country, it's a democracy, but we force people to keep track of how many miles they've driven every year. Because you go get your car tested every year for safety and emissions, we know your mileage. So if you're a high mileage driver, and we know a car you got because you have to register it. So you're at a high mileage driver in a low income bracket, relatively speaking, and in a vehicle that consumes a lot of fuel, I'm gonna offer you a check when you buy a new vehicle for, pick a number, $15,000, $20,000, let's say. If you buy, I don't care if you buy an electric truck, or a far more efficient internal combustion engine. Why should you care? You should let the consumer buy the vehicle that meets their utility function. So the the person who gets the check and they don't drive very far in terms of, or they drive in an environment where they can, they can recharge it or whatever, they'll buy the battery power car. If the other one doesn't have that, they, what a great solution. And that, that sort of politically threads the needle. I mean, I, I don't want to have to fight the two battles simultaneously politically. This is just a, a cynical, pragmatic reality. The, the idea that we have to cut oil use, I disagree with. 
from a viewpoint of carbon dioxide emissions. I do th- I do agree with the idea. This is where we meet in the middle, so to speak, politically. That it'd be great to conserve oil because the world's going to need so much of it that using it more efficiently is just smart, right? If you want to cut it because you think it's bad, I want to cut it because I think it's good and I want to preserve it. But we both agree we should have more efficient engines. Great. So now you thread the needle and say, how do we get from here to there? Do you subsidize rich people to buy battery-powered cars that cause oil to be used in China and Chile and uh, in Indonesia? Or do you give the money to American citizens and let them choose the more efficient vehicle? And I picked the latter, both politically, morally, and ethically, and it threads the needle between our, our goals. We don't have to agree on why we have those goals, but they have the same, in the end, they're the same, the same goal, more, more efficient use of, of oil. Therefore, I reduced oil use by American drivers. I mean, I am shocked that we don't have anybody doing that. I, well, I'm not shocked. I'm being sarcastic. I'm not shocked because there's so much uh, emotion and politics and kleptocracy attached to the narrative that the only way to cut oil use and emissions is to promote EVs, that we haven't got to the point where people are looking for compromise. No, I appreciate that. Um, and I think most people uh, appreciate somehow getting to the middle on on a variety of issues. Um let me ask another question. And of course, we all know social media and uh, the internet is full of good information. Um, <laughs> and it's often not based in fact, but I'm reading more anecdotally again about pollution being driven by tires as opposed oh, yeah. to, yeah. Um, you know, gas emissions. Can you, yeah. can you share any information you have on that? Well, that, so those studies, and this this is this is the category of ones where I'm I'm not on board with what was being pushed, because it, it, it's a for, so the claim is the claim is this EVs are heavier. Well, okay, right. this is right. the fact because you have a half ton battery, and the way you way you keep the EV from being always a half ton heavier than a regular car because everything else in the car is the same. Electric right. motors weigh as much as an internal combustion engine. Uh, is you use a lot of aluminum in the car which by the way, increases carbon dioxide emissions in China where they make the aluminum or Russia where we get aluminum, but uh, detail, nobody cares about their carbon dioxide emissions, but you still have a vehicle that weighs 500 pounds more than it's, it, than it's direct competitor. Okay, a heavier vehicle wears its tires out faster. If you wear your tires out faster, but wearing out a tire means by definition, the particulates that were the tire are going into the air. You think about what wear means, if the tire's worn out, the material wet somewhere, a little bit of it sticks to the road. You see tire tracks on the road, but most of it goes into the air. So the particulates from tires is a form of pollution. Heavier vehicles generate more particulates per mile than lighter vehicles. Therefore, says the studies, the pollution, which is particulate matter, which can be harmful to sensitive lungs, especially compromised people, children, asthmatics, so forth, uh, is increased by using EVs. Okay, that's true on the margin but completely irrelevant because if you choose to buy an suv instead of a a prius uh you've you've done the same thing if you drive a pickup truck you've got a heavy vehicle it's gonna uh so the it's a bit disingenuous uh because you have to then parse out you know tiny changes on the margin understood and this is where i would think politicians are at risk if you want to oppose an ev it would be on safety grounds and cost grounds. So the cost grounds are easy. Uh, they cost more. And if you charge them on the road, it costs more. If you charge them at home, it's cheap. If you charge them on the road in a supercharger, it actually costs 
twice as much to refill the vehicle as by gasoline. It's crazy expensive to use superchargers, the ones that will charge the vehicle up in 20 or 30 minutes. As a, and your gasoline fill up is five minutes. If you've okay. timed yourself, you probably find you could do it in three. So really inconvenient, 20 minutes and it cost you more. This is really a, a very bad thing to do to people. So that's the sort of economic ground. The safety grounds that we're, we're on, uh, you know, Ralph Nader, I hope one day will speak out on this. So he, he became famous for writing about safety issues on cars. Of course. And particularly with the automakers in the early days, not paying as much attention to safety as they do now. It wasn't because they were evil. It's just because it was the nature of the auto business at the time. And some of the designs were, as he pointed out, were less safe than other designs. Well, gee, no kidding. This is, duh. Uh, you know, it's a differences in designs. But electric vehicles have some inherent safety challenges with respect to the battery. Batteries burn differently than gasoline. Uh, batteries can spontaneously ignite. The difference uh, in the bat in the so the battery itself. Uh, plus the high voltage system that an electric car has, there's 400 to 800 volts. So if you're in an accident, you've got two things going on. One is the rescue workers have to deal with an energized car frame that may have 400 to 800 volts DC. For those who don't know differently, DC and AC, the house, the power in your house is AC. It's 120 volts in the wall plug, 220 for your dryer. Uh, if you have ever experienced a DC shock at those voltages, which is lethal, DC at those voltages is incredibly dangerous, much more dangerous than alternating current. So it's very dangerous for firefighters and rescue workers. They know this, so they're exercising caution, which means as they approach you and they go slow to you know get you out of the car, you're, it's a safety issue for you personally. And of course, the battery itself, uh, when they do light on fire, and everybody's seen the, the YouTube videos right. of these fires, they're virtually impossible to put out. So Nor Norway has banned uh, EVs from their ferries entirely because they've had they've had an EV fire that really destroyed the whole ship. There's been like three incidents now of, of ships that carry vehicles to market uh, burning. Two of them like, sunk uh, because the EVs. Wow for reasons that no one knows, it can't do the forensics. So the safety issue, not a not a super big deal when you only got out of 300 million cars on the, on the, in the in America, 280 million and change, you have, you know, a couple of million EVs. Right. And, and and most of those so far are Teslas, which are I'll, I'll say his his engineering for safety and quality control is probably top of the pack, super good. Uh, now we're going to start rushing to make more and more batteries. I, uh, you know, I, I'm just very, I find it very worrisome uh, from a safety perspective. And and if we end up with a bunch of fires killing people, uh, it it won't. The first thing people will say, well, people die in accidents anyway. Okay, it's true, and it's it's a regrettable thing. But if the percentage of fires is higher with EVs than non-EVs. And the jury's out on whether that'd be the case or not. We, do, we, don't, we just don't know. Uh, it might not be if the EVs are made the right way. Uh, it, it might be. It's certainly, nice. li lithium is an extremely energetic chemical, which is why we use it in lithium batteries. Okay, right, uh, that's, that's a, a that's, good point. It's, a, it's gonna be a, a challenge. Uh, and I worry that some bad stuff's gonna happen. And we already had this in Manhattan, your, your, neighboring, your neighboring state and city, that massive uh, uh, EV bicycle uh, fire uh, took down a building, and there, are, I th think the number the number of reported EV 
not EV, scooter uh, and electric bike fires in New York now. It's probably over 100. So these don't get a lot of, I mean, you can find the reports to the fire departments, but they're, they don't get a lot of publicity. And they're relatively small batteries. We're talking right. about a battery, you know, one thousandth the size of your, right. of your right. of the battery of that's going to be in your uh, in your in your EV. Of course. Well, I'm going to close by asking you to take out your crystal ball here. Um, if we're speaking again in 2035, how successful do you think the mandates will be, or have been specifically here in New Jersey? Well, we have to we have to define what you mean by success. Uh, That's a fair question. If uh, I'm being uh, deliberately facetious, uh, they will su- they will succeed in annoying people. They will succeed in uh, causing a massive political blowback. Is what will happen. So the closer we get to the date with the where the mandate, the ban, is not reversed, the the bigger the blowback. So I'll say they will be successful at generating blowback, but the magnitude of the blowback will rise as we get closer to the date for the very simple reason that it, it is a, a ban that will not uh, will not achieve the goals that are intended, never mind CO2 emissions reductions, because the cars won't be cheaper, they won't be easier, and people will be extremely unhappy. So the crystal ball that I would use would be to look at how long it takes before these bands quietly evaporate. There's a lot of ways to have them quietly evaporate. Ex- you know, extend the deadline, soften, the, put caveats in. You know, in a couple of years, you can add a caveat provided that the average EV offered for sales within a, a five to ten percent of the average cost of the average car sold in New Jersey. I mean, you could put your finger on the scale of modifying with the stroke of a pen. The band. So the band could stay in place with all kinds of caveats added that will essentially gut it. It'll be a, a ban in name only that'll have no meaning. So I think some jurisdictions will do that because we get closer to it. Some will simply quietly eliminate it right. uh, without any fanfare. Right. Know, some will do it with fanfare. We'll elect a governor who will say in my first day in office, I'm going to send legislation to the state house that we're going to revert, we're going to reverse this because it's unfair to my citizens and to the hardworking families in New Jersey. I think he will not be successful cutting CO2 emissions because, as I said earlier, the CO2 emissions are elsewhere emissions. And the grid in New Jersey will be like the grid everywhere in America. Ten years from now, it'll be roughly the same. There'll be more wind and solar on it because you're building lots of it. But just like in Germany, which has been at it far along longer. Germany is burning more coal now than they did just a couple of years ago, for reasons you understand. They're still burning lots of natural gas. Um, so they, they haven't eliminated hydrocarbons. So the the emissions from fueling the vehicles are still going to be significant. And the emissions from making them, unless New Jersey decides to start mining lithium and do it with, with battery-powered, unobtainium-fueled uh, you know, backhoes, uh, we're going to end up emitting somewhere else on the planet. So people, will, I think that will become more obvious as time goes by because it's it's not a talking point for the oil companies uh, that to, to say that EVs use oil uh, is a fact, and they use oil elsewhere. And it, you look, New York Times uh, and the Wall Street Post recently, to their credit, have said investigative journalists to uh, 
Congo to look at cobalt, to Indonesia to look at nickel, to Chile to look at copper, to see what's really going on to make the minerals. And all of the reports, you could, you could still find them online. The reporters are shocked at labor practices, costs, environmental impacts, scale. So the truth about what's really happening with these bands, sort of dribbling out into the general environment it's it's uh, I'm, I'm not the only one saying these things um, I'm, just no, I'm not sure it. if it's still true but at one point amnesty international um oh, came out publicly and yes. um, condemned you know the the practices and and ultimately the production until they can be changed and monitored more carefully well, they did, in fact, and good on them. And a number of environmental groups, and especially human rights groups like Amnesty International, are pointing to the labor practices in the supply chains for right. all the minerals. And it, it, so, what's happening so far is they're studying it, quote unquote, which means to rediscover the obvious that there's child labor being used in mines around the world so-called artisanal mining. And they're trying to form standards, right? You remember this, remember the debates over blood diamonds? Right. We'd like to have rules like that. It's pretty easy to do with diamonds. It's really hard to do with copper and uh, graphite. So the initial reaction has been to invoke uh, standards and holding people to account. Well, no, no one is following the standards globally. Not no one. Very few of, my, of these these the bad the bad actors aren't following the standards, and they don't care. What they are doing is hiring PR flax to make it look like they're following the standards. Um, so, well, the book Cobalt Red, which I reviewed for the Wall Street Journal, uh, he 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 uh, is a professor. I think it's at Columbia and also at uh, uh, in a, a British professor. He traveled uh, into uh, the. Uh, Eastern Congo and the jungles to visit these mines, this witness firsthand the labor practices for, for the cobalt. Now, there's some batteries that don't have cobalt. Uh, uh, Elon Musk's most recent vehicles have are, are cobalt free. They use nickel and manganese and others. So you, sh you can go to Indonesia instead and see what they're doing. <laughs> Look at the nickel practices. But the the, the moral part of this is really important uh, for me. I, I, I'm deeply offended by people who call it you know oil company propaganda to point out what what these mining practices are like you know the oil industry is far more transparent it's far easier to be more transparent about what goes on where mines are you know rather oil wells are drilled and refineries are is an extraordinarily um, easy industry to track and monitor compared to the mining industry. doesn't mean we can ever get there with the mining industry, but it's going to be a very long slog because of the nature of that industry. Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. I've certainly learned a lot, and I look forward to sharing this with others. Well, thanks for having me. The GSI Briefing is produced by the Garden State Initiative. For more information about GSI, visit us at gardenstateinitiative.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. Don't forget to subscribe to the GSI Briefing on the podcast platform of your choice. And please leave us a good rating. This is Audrey Lane, and thank you for listening.